Good morning. Well, we've had uh, wonderful studies through the book of Acts the last couple of weeks. We've seen a, a transition, or really a development of a transition that started some chapters ago. Transition really started in Acts 12, I believe. Actually, sorry, that was Acts 10, where the gospel for the first time goes out to the Gentiles. If you remember, uh, Peter is in a house, and the Lord instructs him to go with a couple of people to the house of a Gentile person. This was the first time the gospel was preached to the Gentiles. Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. The gospel is contained in, uh, in these words that Jesus died for our sins, was raised, uh, was buried, and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And in that great act, by dying for our sins, he opened the way for us to go to heaven. And he has made an offer to us, if we put our faith in him, for the salvation of our souls, he will accomplish it. He will bring us to heaven. That's the gospel. And when he, as he was speaking in the house of the Gentiles, the Gentiles believed, and God to demonstrate the fact that these Gentiles were now saved, put upon them the Holy Spirit, they started speaking in tongues, and it says this, all those of the circumcision who believed, that is the Jews that were there, were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles too, because it showed that they were saved. And when Peter got back to Jerusalem, he was in a lot of trouble because he went to the house of the Gentiles, and he said, look, God gave them the Holy Spirit. Who was I to withhold water from them? God clearly showed that he saved his people through the preaching of the gospel. The last couple of chapters, we've seen the gospel now really going out to the Gentiles. Paul was preaching, was sent on a missionary journey by the Holy Spirit again, and he goes through a circuit into an area that today would be Turkey, maybe some of it Greece and some of it Turkey. And he started always at the synagogue where the Jews were, and he preached the gospel to the Jews. And the Gentiles were listening in the back, and they wanted to hear more about the gospel, and he shared it with them, and Gentiles were saved, and more were coming. And generally, the Jews were rejecting the message, at least they, as, a, as a group. There were always some Jews that believed. They were the remnant. But the gospel is now really turning to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are really being saved in large numbers. And as we uh, turn to Acts 15, where we will be reading today, there's actually a word in verse 3. I'm just skipping there. So we'll be in Acts 15. And uh, skipping at verse 3, it, it has a, 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 a word there. It says that as they were going, they were describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all their brethren. It was an amazing thing that God was now really bringing the, the fullness of the Gentiles into his kingdom. But there was something uh, else that was going on, which we're going to get into this chapter. And... Uh, it really goes into what's happening behind the book of Acts. We're looking at events that are happening. Usually this book is called the Acts of the Apostles. We've pointed out again and again, it's not really the apostles that are doing it, because Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So it's Jesus that's building his church. He's using people, but it's really Jesus working behind the scenes. There's another person working behind the scenes that's also caught in that verse. We usually don't think about it. But Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's an enemy. There's an enemy of the human race. We usually use the title Satan. 
He has other titles such as the devil, Lucifer. But he's also working behind the scene against the church. So as Jesus is building his church, you have this enemy out there, the enemy of the human race, that's trying different methods of attacking, of stopping Jesus from building his church. And we talked about some of these methods in the past. We, I had a list here to help me remember. We, in chapter 5, we saw hypocrisy. That's when Ananias and Sapphira came in. They sold land. They got some money and they came to the apostles and said, here's all the money we got from the land. We'd like you to give it to the church. Or we're giving it to the church. And Peter says something interesting. He says, Ananias, why did Satan fill your heart to lie to God? Okay, you see, Peter saw that it was Satan behind it. Now, Ananias was a, a man like, like us, and you know he had a sinful nature, and we can always think about why he did it, but ultimately there's a power that's working against the church. And in that particular time, Satan was trying the strategy of, of hypocrisy. He was trying to bring hypocrisy into the church, because hypocrisy is one of the things that destroys the church, and Satan knows it. And so uh, God, God deals very uh, quickly with it, and Ananias and Sapphira both die that day for, for it. And it, it really, God, God shows the church how to put away that type of sin from the church. We saw another method of Satan we studied was um, uh, division. And that happened when there was division between the, the uh, Judean Jews and the Hellenist Jews. There was division developing there, and God leads the, the church to resolve that. Perhaps the most common method we've seen Satan attack the church is through persecution. I've, uh, I've recorded events of persecution in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. So practically every chapter so far we've seen some cases of persecution. There's a problem, though, with persecution. Uh, I mean... From Satan's point of view, it wasn't working. He's, he's been using persecution at the church so far, and all that's been doing, it's caused the Christian to scatter. So he raises persecution against the Christians. The Christians are being attacked in some way, and so they scatter, they run away. They don't like being persecuted. But what happens? Wherever they run away, they share the gospel, which we mentioned before, that Jesus died for the sins of people, and people, by trusting in Jesus, can now go to heaven and be made right with God. And people were believing. Wherever these people were scattered... They were sharing the gospel. People were believing the gospel. They were being saved. And as a result, Satan's own strategy was working against him. He was spreading the gospel with his persecution. Okay, And so we're seeing here a change in strategy. And now Satan will actually start attacking the gospel itself. The message of the gospel is now going to be under attack. And uh, I, one illustration that came to mind as I was thinking about it, uh, imagine a person who was... Uh, trying to hurt you, and so the first thing he does is he gives you uh, a disease that's going to kill you. He finds a way of infecting you with a disease, and now you're dying from the disease. But God, the great physician, comes along, and he gives you a medicine. And if you take that medicine, you will be healed. And that medicine is the gospel. But what does Satan do now? He's going to put poison into the medicine. So you'll be thinking you're drinking a medicine that's going to save you, but it's going to kill you instead. And that's exactly what's happening. It says in the scripture that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Satan is going to take the gospel, he's going to put something into the gospel that takes away its power from saving people. And in fact, it's going to kill people. 
that's what we'll see happening in this chapter. Let's uh, start reading. We'll just start with the first five verses. And then certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the, of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. I'm going to uh, stop and hook myself up to the amplification system so you guys can all hear me better. How's that? Any change? Okay. We'll see. Um, okay, so here, here is the event we talked about. It says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So remember, we talked about the fact that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being saved. And now we see, uh, it says, Certain men came down from Judea. Judea was the center of Judaism, so we're talking about Jews here, and they're going to the brethren, specifically to Gentiles who have believed the gospel, that by trusting in Jesus, they can go to heaven. And these Jews are telling them, look, believing in Jesus isn't quite enough. You also need to become a Jew in order to go to heaven. You can't just say, hey, I believe in the Jewish Messiah, remain as a Gentile, and expect that Jesus is still going to take you to heaven. That's what they were telling these people. Okay. Now, to uh, try to go a little bit into the mindset, it's not that it's not th this message is from Satan, but he always uses circumstances. These Jews have for hundreds of years lived trying to keep the law of God. God did give them the law uh, about 2,000 years or 1,500 years earlier through Moses. He gave them certain rules that they needed to keep. And these things were never meant to save them. They were meant to show them the righteousness of God, to show them that they in themselves were not able to keep the righteousness of God. But in their mind, they've been, to some extent, keeping those laws, and these laws have kept them in the will of God. Outside the circle of Judaism, you had all the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were not keeping the law. They were not pleasing to God. And because of that, a lot of times they referred to them as the sinners of the Gentiles. So here are we in a little circle as Jews, we keep the law, we please God, and now Jesus came to bring us to God, well, that's great. I can take that. Well, here are the Gentiles, they're not pleasing God, they're not doing anything, to, and, and now Jesus come, and they're saying they're going to, going to believe in him and go to heaven, just like that? Don't you have to do anything to make yourself somehow more acceptable to God before you can go to heaven? A lot of these Jews were thinking, well, you have to be somewhat acceptable to God first. You have to do something to make yourself acceptable to God, then Jesus will bring you the rest of the way. That was the teaching that these Gentiles believers in the first century were now receiving from these people who are generally referred to as Judaizers because they were trying to get these Gentiles to become Jews in order to be saved. 
And that was the situation that they were faced with. Okay, looking at the church response, in verse 2, it says, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, we'll stop there. This is the first line of defense that God has given us against Satan in general, but particularly against uh, this this danger of a false doctrine. This is a false doctrine. This is the false, false gospel. This is the poison that Satan put into the gospel to stop it from saving people's lives. And now we have the first line of defense, and that was the shepherds of the church. We see Paul and Barnabas. There were probably others with them that stepped up and said, what are you talking about? This is not the gospel. This is not going to save people. And we need to thank God for giving us that type of defense. I remember years ago when I uh, just became a believer, I was going to Calvary Bible Chapel, which was then still meeting in San Leandro, and a man came into the assembly and uh, was there for a few Sundays. And I remember one, one Sunday school, he, he started sharing. And <clears throat> I was a pretty young believer, so I had no idea where he was going. But Rick could tell the direction he was going. And he basically said something like, you know, just go out and say it. Basically, this guy was kind of trying to build up what he was about to say. And Rick could tell where he was going. And he said, just go out and say what you want to say. And then we'll deal with it. And the guy just shut up. He didn't even say anything else after that point. And uh, after the, the Sunday school, Rick had a talk with him, and the guy never showed up again to church. And uh, the interesting thing about it is I met the guy again a couple years later at a conference, and I heard that what happened, he went to another church, and uh, as a result of his teaching, that church split. And about uh, several families from that church left and started following him as a result. So praise God for for uh, discerning elders that are willing to take this first line of defense. They see a false doctrine coming in. They're willing to stand up and resist it and stop it from entering the church and causing the damage that the false doctrine can cause the church. And so that's what Barnabas and Paul were doing here. Let's turn very quickly to the book of Galatians. I'm going to try to stay out of it as much as I can because they will be uh, bringing it to us uh, next week. The book of Galatians... And chapter 5. Because the book of Galatians was written exactly because of this situation that arose. This, uh, this false teaching that was bringing, being brought in by the Judaizers that you must also become a Jew. You must be circumcised and keep the law if you want to be saved. This is what Paul has to say about it. Now Paul is actually talking to Gentiles that were believing this message. Okay, I mean, he's also, I'm sure he had plenty of words to say to the false teachers. But this letter was written specifically to Gentiles that were accepting this false doctrine. And we can think about why they're accepting it. There's a couple of reasons. One is these people were looked on as teachers. These were the Jews. These are the ones from which the gospel came to us. They're like Paul and Barnabas. Of course they'll be teaching us the truth of God. Okay? And a lot of people who believe in this type of doctrine today is because there's a recognized authority that's teaching it to them. Second, it says in the Bible that there is a way which seems right to a man, and the end thereof is death. And if you look through the scripture, it keeps, you keep seeing God keeps presenting the gospel to people. And people keep coming up with different ideas of what they must do to be saved. For example, God told Abel and Cain, Abel and Cain, if you want to be right with me, you have to bring this, this uh, sacrifice. You have to, it has to be a blood sacrifice. You have to offer me 
the blood of an animal. And, and Abel does it. And Cain comes and he brings some vegetables from his garden because he thinks that that's going to be more pleasing to God. Something that he created, something that he did. And you can track through the, gospel, through the Bible and you see people building the Tower of Babel to get them to heaven. And it's always something that has to do with their own works. That's the way that seems right to a man. There's something I must do to make myself acceptable to God. That I can somehow, within my own power, do what it takes to make me right with God. That's the way that seems right to a man. And that's another reason why uh, some of these Gentiles were now falling prey to this doctrine. They were believing this false doctrine, that they had to become Jews in order to be saved by Jesus. Okay, so, so this, is the, this is what Paul has to say to them in Galatians chapter 5. And starting at verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait the hope of righteousness by faith. Okay, uh, just to help illustrating the point that Paul is making, I taught for some years a Bible study at, uh, at the Axe House. It's a fraternity in Berkeley. And uh, there was a, a young lady that came to the Bible study a few times. Her name is Zanta. And one particular Monday after the study, she told me that she was very concerned for her soul. You know, they, maybe something in the study kind of worked woke her up to fear for, um, you know, she wasn't sure she was saved anymore. She has a Christian background, so she thought that she was saved already, but something shook, shook up that faith a bit. So she came to me, and I said, well, you know, why don't you meet with Rick? Rick was discipling me at the time, and uh, she agreed, and Rick came the next day to the Axe House and, and met with her, and I sat there as part of the meeting, just really listening, and uh, Rick started talking to her to try to feel where she was, and it's a gift that Rick has. It's very discerning as far as to where people are standing. And he asked her a question that I, I, I didn't know where it came from, but he, he, he could tell that she need, he needed to ask that question. He asked her, Zanta, how much of your salvation are you expecting Jesus to accomplish? And how much of your salvation do you think you need to do? And I forget the exact number she came up with, but it was something along the line, Jesus will accomplish 90% and I need to do my 10%. And uh, that's what effectively these people were doing. Uh, these, these Gentiles that were believing the Judaizers, they said, okay, well, well, Jesus died for our sins, and that's great. That's the 90%. Now I need to become a Jew. That will be my 10%, and then I can go to heaven. Now, this doesn't work, and that's, that's what Paul says here very clearly. He says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And there's a couple of, of uh, illustrations that came to me as to why. One is when you go skydiving. I don't know if you go skydiving. I haven't gone, actually. But I'm led to understand that people take with them two parachutes. Okay, the first one is the one they're planning to use. The second one is in case the first one doesn't open. Okay, which is a great idea when you're skydiving. The problem is this is effectively what you're doing when you're mixing works and faith in Jesus. You're saying, well, Jesus is the parachute I'm going to use 90% of the time, but 10% of the time I might need my own good works to get me 
to heaven. So you're trying to combine the two. You have your big parachute you really want to use, and then the one just in case the other one doesn't work. Well, the problem with that, it means you're not really trusting in Jesus. Okay? If you're really trusting in Jesus, you don't need that second parachute. And that's what these guys were doing. Now, if you're not really trusting, well, now you're not believing the true gospel. The true gospel is Jesus came, he died for your sins, he is now offering to take you to heaven. If you place your trust, if you put your soul in his hand and say, Jesus, I'm counting on you and you alone to get me to heaven, he will save you. If you're saying, well, Jesus, I'm going to lean my soul just this way. You hold 90% of it. I'm going to hold the other 10% of it. And together we're going to get it to heaven. Well, you know what's going to happen? You're not going to be able to do your 10% and your soul is not going to make it to heaven. Second illustration I, I thought of, and this is really what this passage stresses more, is there's generally speaking two ways you can conceive of of going to heaven. There is door number A. Door number A, Jesus stands. He says, give your soul to my keeping, trust in me, and I will get you there. Okay? It's Jesus. Okay, door number two is the door that's been tried by every other conceivable way out there, which has to do with my own achievement. Okay? It could be keeping the law. Uh, it could be, in other ways, uh, trying to use your own accomplishment to get to heaven. Basically, Earn heaven on your own. You can either be good enough to go to heaven, you're just, if you're a perfect person, God will accept you into heaven. There's nothing keeping you out. If you're not a sinner, by all means, come this way. Okay? The other way, it depends nothing on you. It depends only on Jesus. And when they started taking circumcision and said, okay, well, I think circumcision is a pretty good idea. I really think it increases my chance of getting to heaven if I'm, if I'm going to be circumcised. Well, Paul says this to them. He says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You can't pick and choose and say, well, I'll just kind of keep these two laws. If you're going to take door number B, take it all the way. You need to keep, you need to be perfect. You need to keep the whole law. And then, yes, by all means, if you can keep it perfectly, take door number B. If you're a sinner like me, choose door number A. <laughs> okay? Okay. Well, uh, back to Acts, and uh, it's notable that uh, a couple of things. First of all, Paul and Barnabas were not able to convince everybody that what the true gospel was, so they had to they had to go to Jerusalem. And even in Jerusalem, we see that there's uh, there's a, a stronghold of disbelief of of people believing that you have to be a Jew in order to go to heaven, and it really shows how strong this this doctrine is. The other thing that stands out is when you have this type of questions or disagreement about doctrinal matters, what is your authority? How will you decide which one is true? So here you have somebody telling you it's Jesus alone. Then you have somebody telling you, well, it's Jesus plus works. Who are you going to believe? How are you going to decide which one is telling you the truth? Well, in their case, uh, the Bible wasn't completed yet, and so the closest they could come to the source is the apostles of Jesus. The people who Jesus spent time with, Jesus taught, Jesus commissioned to go out as apostles and spread the message. They were the authority. And that's why uh, Paul and Barnabas and others with them went to Jerusalem. That was, in a sense, the center of authority because there you had the apostles. Today we don't have that. 
uh, everybody that knew Jesus at that time and was personally taught with taught by him in uh, in this uh, before he uh, went to heaven is gone. But we have this, okay, which which is the book that these people wrote. So if you want to know what the apostles had to say about Jesus, we'll just read it. In fact, what we're doing here in this class is we're starting through the book of Acts. We take breaks. We go to the epistles. The epistles were all letters written by apostles to the saints in those days to, if you would, give them all the information that Jesus gave to the apostles. So really, by having this, you don't have to travel to Jerusalem every time you have a question and consult with you know, a man that was taught by Jesus. You have all the information you need right here. This is, what, this is how we resolve conflicts. This is how we resolve questions about doctrine. Everything is in this book. Okay, they get to Jerusalem, and uh, we'll pick up in verse 6. So the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the people kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon had declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with these words of the prophets agree, with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are, who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. move it up a bit. Maybe it'll help people hear me even better. Okay. So now we're at Jerusalem. This is, if you would, the council of Jerusalem that's supposed to decide on this question. Is this uh, new teaching valid that Gentiles have to become Jews before they can be saved? Or is it false? That's the question that's put before the council. And it says there's much disputing happening. So again, it shows there's, you really have a lot of mixed up people. This was a very difficult thing for the Jews to give up. The fact that you had to, to be a Jew before you could be saved. They really, they really couldn't believe that the Gentiles could just be saved by faith. It was a, 
a bitter pill for the Jews to swallow. But, uh, but Peter stands up and he says, he gives them uh, three, three arguments as to why this new teaching is a false teaching. First argument is the story I recounted at the beginning of this sermon. Well, God showed it. God made me go to the Gentiles' house and I spoke the word of the gospel and God saved them. I, I never even told them a single word on becoming Jews. They didn't become Jews before they were saved. God demonstrated that he saved them by faith alone. Without them doing any action to make themselves closer to him or make themselves Jews or anything like that. So that's argument number one. We have by example, God saved the Gentiles without them becoming Jews or doing any type of good work. Okay, uh, argument number two is really in uh, verse 10. It says, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke? I really like this word, why do you test God? And what it really shows, this did not come from God. Wasn't God never told them to be preaching this doctrine that the Gentiles needed to become Jews. Now, he was very clear about the gospel. Okay, he says, Go ye therefore into all ye er the earth and preach to every creature the gospel. People will believe the gospel. People will be saved. God never told them, neither in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, God never tells the Jews to go out and make Jews. Okay, it's very noticeable. This whole idea that the Gentiles needed to become Jews was a human idea, which remember we said at the beginning, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Okay, this was a human conception. Okay, argument number three, Peter is basically saying this, look, guys, yes, we do have this law from God, but I've never kept it. Did you? Neither, neither we nor our fathers were ever able to keep the law of God to the perfection required to get to heaven. It, yes, Moses said to them, God said through Moses, you know, whoever you know, keeps all the works of the law shall live. If you can be perfect and keep everything, yes, you'll go to heaven. But the whole history of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, is we can't. We're sinners. And, and Peter says because of it, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I'm also a sinner like the Gentiles are. And I'm sure hoping that Jesus is still going to take me to heaven, just like he's going to take them to heaven. There is nothing. Peter is saying there is nothing I'm standing on besides for the grace of Jesus to get me to heaven. That's what Peter was saying with all the Jews around him. And he was, you know, the great apostle, so to speak. And... Uh, so that's the three arguments. One, God showed by example. Two, it's only human reasoning that's leading you to think that you need to add works or Judaism in order to bring salvation. Number three is we can never keep the law. And because of that, the law is never going to get us to heaven. Uh, the next argument in the council is really wrapped up in verse 12. Paul and Barnabas shared about all the miracles and wonders God was doing through them among the Gentiles. You may remember from last week, how there was a man that, uh, I think, uh, what was the word? Uh, verse 8 of chapter 14. Listen, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, crippled from his mother's womb, who had never walked. A person who never walked in his own life. And uh, if, if we uh, uh, jump to verse, uh, continue verse 9. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he leaped and walked. It was a miracle. 
wasn't the only one. It says in, in verse 12 of chapter 15, all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. What does it show? Well, it's God's seal of approval over their ministry. If they were going out and teaching a false doctrine, Gentiles can be saved by simply believing in Jesus. God wouldn't put his seal on that work. If the truth was, no, you need to first become a Jew before you, you, know, before you can go to heaven, God would put the seal on the Judaizers. And Paul and Barnabas would be here with no miracles, and the Judaizers would be going around with all kinds of miracles around them. But it wasn't. The Judaizers never did any miracles. It was Paul and Barnabas that did. It was God's seal. This is the truth. He was mocking it. And it was really, uh, I talked to, me and Sharon talked about it yesterday, about the fact that, well, you know, miracles are not always dependable and things like that. In this particular time, it was very important because there was a change, okay? In God's dispensation, things were different now than they were before. And God had to show very clearly which was the right way. It's not that people were ever saved by their own works. It was always salvation by faith. But there was a pretty uh, large... There were differences between the new dispensation and the old dispensation, and God wanted to mark very clearly which way the road turned. Uh, if you go driving on the road, you can drive for miles and miles. There won't be a single post sign telling you what to do. There'll be just forest on our way to Yosemite. But as soon as, as soon as you come to a cross section, there's going to be a sign telling you, well, if you go this way, you're going to get to Yosemite. If you go that way, you're going to get to Twin Hearts or some other place. And that's why at that particular cross-section, when changes were going to happen, God made it very clear, this is the way you need to go. There were miracles that showed what was the truth of God. The truth of God is you're saved by faith in Jesus plus nothing. There's nothing else you have to do in order to be saved. Okay, argument number three is brought here by James to us. And again, this, all these things just remind me of how how difficult it was for the, the, the Jews at that particular time, or at least a particular segment of them that was really struggling with this change. But um, the Jews really thought that, that God's plan was to save Jews. They really, they really didn't understand that God's plan was much larger than that, that he was going to save the whole world. That was God's plan, by the way. But they didn't realize it. And, uh, and so... James is pulling out here verses out of the Old Testament prophets to show, look, this was God's plan all the time. You know, maybe we were blinded for it, but open your eyes. God meant to save the whole world. God meant to save the Gentiles as well. Verse 16 and 17. <clears throat> so this is a quote from the prophets in the Old Testament. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Really, the, the focus here is on, the, on uh, the early part of verse 17. I mean, this is right from their own Bible, the Old Testament. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. There you have it. In the Old Testament, God planned to save the Gentiles. And basically to quiet all their arguments. Look, you can't say God wasn't going to save these Gentiles by faith in the Jewish Messiah, really the Savior of the world, because we have it right there in the Old Testament. This has been God's plan all along. He was going to save not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. 
Now, uh, we have here at the, the end of this passage something that, that uh, could, could be confusing. Uh, starting at verse 19, it says, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. People are asking, and it's the tendency of my mind too, why in the world, after clarifying that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, are you now going to give the Gentiles a bunch of rules to follow? I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense. But uh, it'll make sense in one second. First of all, notice that this has nothing to do with their salvation. If, if we jump to verse 29, where this letter is actually written out and spelled out to them, it continues that it, it lists those things. It says that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things tangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Okay? If this was necessary for their salvation, he would have said, if you do these things, you shall be saved. It doesn't say that. It says, you will do well. It's possible for me, after I become a believer, a Christian, there's still good things I can do and bad things I can do. I can, I can mess up. I can make mistakes after being saved. It's not going to cost me my salvation. Saved once, I'm saved forever. But it might mean that my life here might be less happy. It might mean that the lives of other people around me will be less happy. It might mean that instead of reaping the rewards, I could be in heaven and doing things for God. I'm not doing them. So it's possible to do well as a Christian and to do not well. And so these things were written, written to them for their, their help. This would be to their benefit if they did it. It's not going to save them, but it's going to, to help them. Okay. Question number two, how is it going to help them? Uh, why, why doesn't he talk about a lot of things we, we see in the epistles, talking about abstaining from certain sins that we might feel more of a draw to today? Most of us are not thinking of going out and eating meat offered to idols. Not particularly attractive to us. Or, you know, eating blood. I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't interest me at all. But uh, there, there's two things about it. First of all, this would have been something that would be very easy for them to continue as. I remember talking to uh, a person I was discipling, and he was concerned about another person that uh, was newly saved and some of the things that they were doing. And I, I told him, well, it takes a while. You're, when you're saved, you don't automatically drop off all your sinful habits. It really comes a little at a time. God starts chopping up. He starts showing you that something is sinful, and so you put it away. And then something else comes to the surface. Something sinful puts you away. And God is slowly shaping your life like that of the Lord Jesus. He's, making, he's conforming you to the image of his son. That's his goal, and he's starting this work here on earth. And it's to your benefit to, to work with that. As God is showing you an area in your life you need to put away, work with God. <laughs> put it away. Okay, it's for our good. And uh, there are certain things that you're more likely to be doing because the sins you've been practicing before you were saved, <clears throat> and for whatever reason, you, you just haven't been convicted by them yet. Right? <clears throat> and the more you practice something before you were saved, the more likely it is that you're not very sensitive to that actually being a sin. God usually really has to spend a lot of effort to make you realize that this way of life that's ingrained in you is actually displeasing to him, and you need to put it away. <clears throat> <clears throat> well, that was the case with this particular sin for the Gentiles. 
Remember, these people weren't judged just outside of Judaism. They were practicing their own Gentile religions. And generally speaking, in the Gentiles' religion, they would offer up animals, sacrifices to idols. And then they would be eating the meat of those animals. And that was generally the most available meat on the market because it was cheap. There was lots of it out there. And some of it included eating blood. And very frequently, the religious ceremonies included, uh, (coughs) what's the word here, sexual immorality. It was very common in those days as part of the religious practices of the Gentiles. So these would be items that would be perhaps particularly difficult for the Gentiles to recognize as sin. On the other hand, you had the Jews. For the Jews, those particular sins, the sacrificing to idols, eating the meats of the, of the sacrifices, uh, sexual immorality associated with the religious practices, to the Jews, that was the very uh, epitome of Gentile sinfulness. And so now, you have here Gentiles coming into the church that are likely to still be practicing, to some extent, those old sins. They just haven't perhaps recognized how terrible that is in the sight of God. And you have here the Jews that are saved, that have their own baggage of sins. Don't worry about that. They had their fair share. But look at that particular sins that were practiced by the Gentiles. And like, ah, you know, I can't have fellowship with someone who's doing something like this. And so it was, really, it was for the good of the Gentiles, but really for the good of the church that, that this statement was made uh, pointing out to the Gentiles that these particular items are, are, are sins that would really be to your benefit and to the benefit of the church if you stop practicing them. Okay? That's why, why this is here. Okay, let's uh, quickly read uh, the rest of the passage. Verse 22, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. He wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words and settling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same thing by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well, farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. And after they had stayed there for a time, they sent back with greetings. They, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So we talked at the beginning how this was a new tactic used by Satan to try to... Uh, 
to stop the growth of the church. By changing the, right, the true gospel with the false one, people will believe the false one as a result. They're not going to be saved. It's going to hinder the growth of the church. Uh, a couple of things to note. You have here two strategies used by the church against it. The first one is with this letter. It's notable to what extent the effort is made to preserve this truth. They could have just told Paul and Barnabas and the people who came with them, some of which were probably the Judaizers, okay, we consider this matter in our court and this is our answer. This is a false doctrine, don't teach it. Okay, go tell everybody. They could have just done that, but they wanted to make sure that this truth was preserved. They didn't want there to be any potential question as to what was the truth. And so they didn't just send them back, they, sent, they wrote a letter to send it to, for them to take it back with, and they sent people with them to back the letter and explain what the letter was saying. There's a lot of effort to preserve the truth, because the truth was the defense against Satan, against this particular attack of Satan. The other thing that's uh, noticeable, and that's in the later verses here, and that keeps coming up. In verse 31, he talks about Judas and Silas being prophets, also exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. And then again in verse 35, it says, Paul and Barnabas also remain in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. There's a lot of teaching all of a sudden going on. And this is the other part of the response to this uh, new tactic that the devil has, which is very active today. If you don't believe me, uh, look out and see how many cults are out there. How many people believe in a false gospel, a false doctrine that's keeping them from Christ, that's keeping them from salvation. Satan is still very active. Well, the, the response here was, uh, it's often said that the best defense is offense. Well, the offense here was going out and teaching, teaching the truth. Don't wait for Satan to bring up a lie and then try to explain why it's a lie. Go out and teach the truth. And that's an opportunity that we have today as well. The battle hasn't ceased, like I, I pointed out. Satan's still active. He's still winning victories out there. And the right thing for us to do isn't to sit in defense and say, well, I'm going to very strongly continue to believe what I'm believing and I'm not going to let him change my mind. It's going on offense. It's going out and teaching others. And uh, I was thinking of, of, of practical ways. One practical way is, I know, I don't know if there's any open slots, Don, but Don made an invitation a few months ago for all the men, I think above the age of 18, to uh, share in this teaching. There's uh, other epistles that need to be taught. See Don later if you're interested. Uh, not just men. Women are exhorted in the scripture to teach younger women. And uh, I've seen it in my own family. Uh, Kristen uh, uh, met with Sharon for, I think, uh, a while and taught her. And now Sharon is meeting with, with a young lady and is, is teaching her. So there's opportunities for women to be involved in teaching. If you're a young person, we've, we've had the HMI meeting uh, going last year. And there's opportunities there for, for even high school age uh, uh, boys and girls or men and women to be teaching. You'll be teaching the children that come out to HMI. There's a lot of opportunities out there to enter the warfare and go on the offense against Satan in his strategy of, of misleading us, misleading people from the truth of the gospel that saves them and trying to implant in them a false gospel. You can go out and teach people and create this line of defense of offense against Satan and his teaching so that the gates of hell will not prevail against what the Lord is doing. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us. First of all, the fact that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus, that Jesus loved us enough to come and die for our sins, that he can take us to heaven, even though we are sinners, Lord, and do not deserve it. Thank you for uh, the teaching of your word, showing us uh, the way we can combat it, Lord, and help us be standard bearers of the truth, not just on the defense, but on the offense, Lord. I ask that you give uh, your, your people opportunities to teach, the desire to teach, the tools to teach others also, that uh, we might continue your work until the, the day that uh, you return. We do ask these things, Lord, in your name.